of course, our children are a combination of us. They're a combination of our genes. They're a combination of our upbringings. They're a combination of our baggage. They're a combination of our parenting styles. So I wonder if we look at the combination of us conveying to her that she can't make a mistake, that when she watches us do our lives, what does she see? So she sees a dad that kind of freaks out and is catastrophic, that something might go wrong. She sees a dad that's kind of rigid about this and this and this. She sees a mom that has a lot of energy, that does a lot of things, that's really into this and this and this, but also is really a little worried about not knowing something and embarrassing herself and putting herself out there. Because remember, social anxiety is really based in a fear of judgment. Welcome to Flusterclux with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about how to manage those tricky emotions that show up in all families. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host, Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Flusterclux, and I'm here to help you find your way. And I'll even tell you what to do and what to say. Lynn, we're going to release another in-session episode today. And for newer listeners, this is a very exciting opportunity to actually hear you offer a consultation as if this was a therapy client. So you talk to one of our listeners and you're going to tell us about this session and what you discussed. But one of the things I think would be very helpful is that a lot of times people ask us questions in the Facebook groups. And then when we'll say, well, did you listen to this episode? And they'll say, well, that wasn't about my exact problem. And of course, you and I always say like, these are principles here and that we learn to apply to our own family as well as to any situation. We're going to talk about this family today who's got some issues around flexibility. This is actually a great episode. And let me just say that I am so, so grateful for any of the families that do these in-session episodes because they're really opening themselves up and sharing with everybody. So I just want to say that on the outside, that I am very, very grateful for this mom. So this is a mom talking about her nine-year-old daughter, and she is noticing rigidity. She is noticing that getting her child to do things, there seems to be a difficulty moving into new things, very, very typical of anxious kids in particular. But what's interesting about this episode is that it really comes down to making the connection between the parent's rigidity and how that's being modeled. And we talk a lot about how to disrupt that pattern. So think about this. Rigidity, super common, particularly in anxiety. And the whole concept that your kids are picking up on what you're doing in a way that maybe you haven't noticed. And so I'm shining a light on that. So it's a great episode. For the parents who are listening who are like, oh, rigidity, that's not really an issue. Well, wouldn't you say every person still has areas where they're more rigid than others? And we need to be self-reflective about this and be truthful with ourselves that no one is free from being rigid about certain types of content. Right. And the thing about no one is free of being rigid. And then the flip side of that is that flexibility in a variety of situations is generally helpful. So not only do we want to pay attention to our level of rigidity, we also want to make sure that we are enhancing our flexibility. How do we do that in our language, in our behavior? It is so common. You know, if everybody listening right now just sort of thinks, oh, what's an area in my life which I could be more flexible, right? I think we're all able to come up with something about flexibility. And it's just a helpful concept for everybody to pay attention to and to really, like you say, to be a little reflective about where can we add more flexibility and where is the rigidity showing up in our kids and in our parenting? Mm -hmm. All right, let's take a listen. Okay. So hi, everybody. We are here again for another episode of our Fluster Clucks in session. And I am so delighted that we have Rachel joining us today. So Rachel, go ahead and just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and tell me what you're hoping to deal with today. Hi. Well, first, I want to say thank you so much for having me. Um, I have become a dedicated listener of the podcast and feel like I'm talking to a famous person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my kids feel the same way. 
Yeah. <laughs> no, they don't. But also kind of like to a best friend. You remind me so much of my best friend. So that's so nice. Okay. So good. <laughs> so we're comfortable with each other right away. Yeah. So I have recently sort of become aware of anxiety as a phenomenon, which I guess I really didn't know before. It's so funny. I had a conversation with another best friend actually not too long ago. And she said she was talking to her husband and he said he told her that he didn't see any difference between anxiety and stress. And I thought about it for a minute and I was like, I totally see a difference between anxiety and stress. And she was like, yeah, you know, I think most women do. But, you know, the more I thought about anxiety and the more I've thought about my husband with whom I've had some difficulties over our nearly 12-year marriage, I've come to understand that, you know, he's not really the big, strong independent guy without any vulnerabilities that I thought he was and that he presents as. And actually that he struggles with anxiety, probably in the clinical sense. Gosh, I wish I'd realized that sooner in our marriage. (laughs) One of the reasons why it's really coming to the fore right now is because I feel like I'm starting to see some of the signs in my just turned nine-year-old daughter. So I have two daughters, an older one, nine, and a younger one, four. They're both lovely, sweet, loving, delightful children, and also brave. I mean, they're the first ones to run around on the playground and jump from the highest bars. And there's no sort of fear around kind of physical challenges, I would say. But I am starting to see in my older one, some anxiety around, I guess what I would say is things that don't come to her immediately. So she's a kid who she's very smart and she's very capable, both physically and mentally. And so she's used to getting things right away. When she started school, I saw her begin to run up against things that she doesn't get right away because nobody does because learning is a lifelong process and an iterative process that builds on itself. So when she started to encounter things that didn't immediately click, I started to see honestly, what I could only term as panic. I see it most personally at home when we study piano together. So we do Suzuki piano. She's done it for about two and a half years. Suzuki piano, the methodology is the parent attends the lessons with the kid and then sort of writes down what the kid needs to work on over the week and really is like the home teacher. Kind of the coach, you're coaching her. Yeah, When she encounters a new piece of music, something she's never seen before, even if it's well within her capabilities, she is under the piano bench, hiding in the corner, screaming, crying. I mean, she almost seems like she's under physical attack. Yeah. Big reactions. Yeah. Lashing out at me in a way that she really never does any other time. And I was really kind of taken aback by this behavior, but... I've also seen it in regards to some academic stuff. We were passing by a sign recently in the car and she saw a sign that said open eight to eight. And she said, what does that mean? And I said, well, it means it's open from 8 a.m. in the morning to 8 p.m. at night. You know, how many hours is that? And she couldn't answer the question. I said, well, how many hours in the day? Well, I I don't know. And I was like, all right, patient mom, I'm going to explain how time works to her. And immediately I get, no, I don't want to talk about this. And I get that in response to certain things, you know, the things where she feels uncomfortable. So it started to dawn on me, right? This is a form of anxiety. But then I heard one of your podcasts, which talked about anxiety really being a generational thing and almost certainly passed down from one of the parents or both of the parents. I will not say that I am without anxiety. I certainly have social anxiety. I am very uncomfortable, like asking people, where were you born and where'd you grow up and where'd you go to school? Like, I cannot bring myself to do those things. I think the difference between my husband and I is when we go to park, right? If he's driving, he'll go to like the general vicinity where he needs to be and he'll park immediately because there's probably not going to be parking immediately near where he'd, whereas I go all the way to the place. And then I start to circle out if, you know, because I just always assume like things are going to go fine, right? I'm a generally lucky person. Things are generally going to go fine. Whereas I think his outlook on the world is things are almost certainly going to be terrible. 
that he's always looking for the other shoe to drop. And how do you think if he were to convey that view of the world to your daughters, how might he do that as a parent? How does that come across, do you think? I do think that he's fearful about their physical safety a lot of times, for sure, which is funny because he and I are both sort of big, strong people. We met doing, you know, a physical sport together. So in a lot of ways, our girls are very intrepid on the playground, you know, and I'm always very proud, like they're the ones willing to go across the monkey bars, whereas the other kids are all scared. But like I noticed even when I was pregnant, like he was really scared. Maybe they'll have a genetic disease. Maybe there'll be a miscarriage. Maybe this, maybe that. And I'm like, well, I'm the one who's pregnant. Why are you worrying about all these things? Thinking in retrospect, I'm now realizing like that was him over predicting, as you say, right? Like overestimating the problem and underestimating his ability to deal with it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Another example is like this morning, getting in the car in the garage, I drive the girls to school in the morning. And for whatever reason, the older one, she started to get into the car in the garage and then decided against it. It's very close quarters, but she left the door open and she left the garage. And then she realized she'd left the door open. She was starting to come back in. And my husband at this point comes out the front door. So he's out next to the driveway. He's like, don't go in for don't you're gonna get run over by the car. And it's like, she's just going to close the door. And then he saw the door was open. He was like, don't pack up the car. Don't you're gonna break the car. Yeah, he's very reactive in like very fearfully reactive. Yeah. But the way he expresses his fear is anger and accusations. So he he said, your daughter left the door open. My poor nine-year-old, she's like, "Ah," you know, now we're all upset because he yelled and he got angry over what he perceived as being a terrifying situation. But I mean, it could have been, but it wasn't. Yeah. You were able to handle it it. And he goes right to that catastrophic place and he reacts in a strong, loud, blaming, fearful way. Yes. And your girls hear that and the girls see that and you hear that and you see that. Would you say that happens once a week, twice a week, once a month? How often does he sort of have those big reactions or those blaming reactions? You didn't give a day as a... Okay. An option. <laughs> I would say we all kind of tiptoe around him. Daddy might get angry. Well, go ask daddy. No, I don't want to ask daddy. Daddy's going to get mad. Well, daddy can drive you to school today. I don't want daddy to drive me to school today. Daddy swears when he misses the turn and he gets really angry. Mm -hmm. So they're seeing somebody who has a really difficult time with their own emotional management. They're seeing somebody, would you describe him as rigid? Short answer, yes. (laughs) I often get the complaint from him like, I thought we had a plan and then you went and changed it. We didn't do what we were going to do. And I'm like, well, hon, I mean, you know, things change over the course of the day. Like, this is normal. This is how people interact with each other. Oh, you know, you go to the market, not me on the fly. He'll complain like, oh, it changed. But then he'll change things because it is normal. It is normal for things to change on the fly. Yeah. Would you describe him as perfectionistic with himself or with other things? Do things need to be a certain way? How does he handle his own mistakes? It's funny. On the one hand, I describe him as lazy and sloppy. But on the (laughs) other hand, when he decides to undertake a task, I always joke, if he's making spaghetti sauce, he starts with the tomato seeds, right? He he starts at the very beginning and he does every step, even if it takes him all night long. I didn't know his parents, but I can sort of see the influence and some things he's told me about how hard his dad was on him and you know, his trying to teach him woodworking, his dad would say, well, what do you think you should do next? You know, really, and that really, it didn't have a Socratic effect on my husband. It had like a shaming effect. Like he didn't know what to do next. Right. It would be like if your daughter said, I don't understand what eight to eight means. And you said, well, what do you think it means? Yeah. And she was like, I don't know what it means. And you said, oh, she doesn't understand time. She hasn't had to deal with time yet because we've been in the timeless COVID, the endless timeless COVID. But if you had said to her, well, what do you think it means? 
that just immediately would put her on edge. Okay, so you're watching this. You're watching your husband do this. You're trying to be a buffer between him and the girls sometimes. Is that the role that you get into? I, me, and also I'm starting to see my nine-year-old try and act as a buffer between me and him. I know that's not healthy. Yeah. Okay, so there's two things to deal with here. One is that his awareness of his own behavior and whether or not he's willing to look at it. And the answer may be yes or no. We'll get to that. And then how then do you help your nine-year-old develop the skills that she needs to in order to be able to handle making mistakes, in order to be able to handle the bumpy process of learning, in order to handle frustration tolerance? Because what you're seeing in her is an expectation of her that she has begun to internalize that she's supposed to know how to do things, that if she makes a mistake, there's going to be a big problem. And if she screws something up, that it's going to be catastrophic. So if she leaves the car door open, if she makes a mistake in her piano, if she screws up with her homework, if she gets a bad grade in school. So we want to get in there and we want to intercept that. So what you're seeing and what you're noticing, good for you because you're saying, this is a little bit of a flag I need to pay attention to. So the good news is she's nine, right? She's not 17. You know, sometimes parents will email me or call me and they'll say, my daughter's heading off to college in three months and I realize that she can't handle making a mistake and I need to fix it. And I think, okay, well, I wish we had started earlier. I always say the earlier, the better, but it's never too late. So I wouldn't say to a parent of a 17 year old, well, sorry, done deal, but she's nine. You've got time. And you've got influence and she's got an incredibly malleable little brain. Good. Tell me what to do. Okay. I'll tell you what to do. Question number one, is your husband at all aware of this? Is he willing to look at this? And have you tried to talk to him about this at all? He is aware and willing to admit to it. I know that he did therapy before me. I know that he and I have done couples therapy since before my daughter was born, my nine-year-old was born. We've recently thrown our hands in the air and given up on that. So he sees it. I just don't think he's ever found a solution for it other than drugs and alcohol, with which he's had some episodes during the time that I've known him. I haven't seen him take a drink now for a number of years, but he's recently gone back to pot. I mean, not horrible drugs, but when he smokes, he gets stupid. I mean, and the girls notice and that's not cool. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And I don't also don't like having a conversation with somebody who's arguably like, yeah. Okay. So he's aware that there is an issue. He just may not know exactly what he's supposed to do about it. So he's trying to self-medicate. And he's older than 17. <laughs> that's right. So he's trying to make himself feel better. Is there any leverage to be had in terms of his influence on his girls? What do you mean by leverage? So if you said to him, you know, I've been noticing. You're having an effect on the girls? Yeah. I've been noticing this behavior. So do you say that when you're angry or do you say that when you're feeling loving and empathic? <laughs> good question. I say it at both times. Okay, good. If he were in front of me, this is what I would say to him. So let's say, I don't know his name. We won't have to say his name. Let's just say his name is Bob. So I would say, Bob, here's the thing. We all come into marriages and we all come into parenting with a whole lot of baggage. And sometimes the baggage is filled with wonderful things of love and acceptance. But most people, even if they have a bag full of love and acceptance and caring and support, we generally carry in another bag that's full of stuff that's not so helpful. And one of the things it seems is that you have a hard time managing not only your anxiety, your worry, your fear about what could happen, that you tend to fall into that category of overestimating the problem and underestimating either your or your family's resources to deal with it. And that when there is a problem, when you get hit with that anxiety and that fear, that panic, that things need to be a certain way you blast, you react, you blame, you get angry, you get loud. It is very hard for you to tolerate not knowing exactly what's going to happen. Do you think seeing a therapist or a psychiatrist would be helpful 
but you don't have the time to actually find one? And then, like, when do you have time to meet with them? Try Talkspace. By doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help you want easy, accessible, and affordable. It's in-network with most major insurers. There's no need to commute to appointments. You won't miss time at work or have to line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. Talkspace lets you send messages to your therapist so you don't have to wait for your next session. Therapy can help you shift your perspective and find tools to cope in difficult times. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, substance abuse, relationship issues, and much more. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. Hey, so the other day I had to change my car insurance. And guess what? I bought new car insurance And they sent me a check, right? So that you could buy something and get money back at the same time doesn't happen very often. And it's pretty darn fun. That's why you got to check out Ibotta. Ibotta is a free app that gives you the most cash back every time you shop on hundreds of items from groceries to beauty supplies to toys. You can make sure you're beating inflation no matter what you're purchasing. So the average Ibotta user earns $256 a year. That's actually more than I got back on my car insurance, I'll tell you. That could cover the cost of an entire shopping trip. Other apps give you points that don't amount to too much. With Ibotta, just add your offers in the app, upload your receipt, and you get real cash that you can cash out to your bank account, PayPal, or gift cards. So join the 50 million users, earn cash back, Every time you shop, over 2,700 brands, everybody, retailers, including Lowe's, Sephora, Best Buy. Right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 just for trying Ibotta by using the code FLUSTER when you register. Just go to the App Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app to start earning cash back and use the code FLUSTER. That's I-B-O. TTA and use the code FLUSTER. Okay, we're back. Not everybody who's rigid is anxious, but most people who are anxious are rigid. So what you are describing is somebody who's pretty rigid and pretty anxious and trying to control. And this is what I would say to him. So unfortunately, if this is left unchecked, What you are modeling for these little people that you are now raising is that there are really big consequences to making a mistake. There are really big consequences to things not going as planned. There are really big consequences. And that means that kids grow up with this idea that if they make a mistake, they're filled with this rush, this panic they will try and avoid. Some kids burst into tears. Some kids fight back. Some kids get angry. It's called fight or flight for a reason and freeze. Some kids shut down. What we want to talk to him about is how can he model for his girls handling mistakes? How can he begin to incorporate into his parenting language some phrases like, you know, it's hard to know everything when you're nine years old? And my two favorite words, of course. Of course you don't know what eight to eight means, because how much exposure have you had to clocks? You could say to her, oh my gosh, we have lived in this crazy world. You haven't gone to school. You haven't learned how to tell time. You don't know that lunch starts at this time and ends at this time. You're just learning all those things. And also, by the way, you're nine years old. Talking to him about how he can begin to say out loud, we all make mistakes that he can begin to say, oh, you know what? Sometimes things just do not go as planned. It would be a really great exercise in your family as if you listen to the podcast, you've heard me say that you do the unexpected things of the day. So daddy, what unexpected thing happened to you today? And what did you do to manage it? And then you say that to your girls. And then you give an example of, oh, I thought this was going to happen like this, 
and something went wrong or I was about to go and do this and I realized, oh my gosh, we're out of milk or oh my gosh, the batteries didn't work. You want to normalize things not going as planned and you want to normalize, just as you said, the process of learning, the process of making mistakes, the process of figuring things out. And you want to talk to him about how important it is for him to model that for them. And to even be able to say, I bet you didn't get that modeled for you. You know, you can say to him, you told me that story about your dad trying to teach you woodworking. And your dad didn't say to you, you know what? Woodworking is a lot of different skills that you learn as you go. And we make mistakes and we figure it out and ask him if he can really be aware of modeling that for his girls. The hill I wouldn't die on with him is his interpretation of stress versus anxiety because his definition of stress is things outside of me aren't going well and I have a huge internal reaction to that. So when people are anxious, when people need things to go a certain way, they really depend on the world cooperating with them. And so it feels very stressful when the world doesn't. So that's just semantics. That doesn't matter to me too much. Yeah. Because this is an internal reaction that he's having to the world not cooperating or you not cooperating or the driver next to him not cooperating. Yeah. He definitely has issues with me not cooperating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a pretty dynamic person and I'm always doing a lot of stuff and setting up a lot of stuff for the girls and for the family. And I don't sit down very often. He's told me he finds that very stressful. I'm a little bit like, yeah, but you only get one life. If you were being not stressful, how would he expect you to behave? I wish I knew because <laughs> I would try and behave that way. I mean, I know he would like to see me happy. Uh-huh. What does that mean to him? Interesting to me, you're saying you guys went to couples therapy for over and over. Like these questions never came up, right? No, they definitely. I mean, I begged, like, what do you want me to do? Yeah. Oh, okay. Mostly he wants me to stop bugging him. You know, he wants me to stop asking him to squeeze out the sponge and stop asking him to clean up after himself and stop asking for this and this and this and this and stop being so demanding. Okay. So he thinks you're controlling and demanding. Yeah. Okay. He's not entirely wrong. Okay. Like when I say I'm a a high, whatever it was, I said a high impulse person or whatever. I do. I'm involved with a lot of stuff. I feel like what I can't convince him of is like, there is a certain level that we need to get to in terms of like life being under control, the finances being under control, the house being clean enough that like, if we could just get there, I would calm down for him. You know, I would stop asking. I would be more okay with this, that, and the other thing. Is squeezing out the sponge on the list of high priorities? (laughs) Well, it's one I gave up on years and years ago. At the same time, like it's two calories. Why not just squeeze out the sponge if you live with somebody who has asked you to? Well, he could say the same about you. He could. And when he asked me to try and change things, I do try and change them. I mean, if he had a squeeze out the sponge equivalent, I certainly would. I'm not without blame. Yeah. Well, nobody's ever without complete blame, right? Are you perfectionistic in the way things should be done? Is there any additional modeling that you're doing for your nine-year-old that things need to be done a certain way? I don't think that I'm perfectionistic. I do think that I am high intensity. So I definitely model like, let's do a million things. And the other thing that was occurring to me as I was talking to you, my nine-year-old, I see so much of myself in her. I really feel like, except for this anxiety thing that we started with, I really understand her. And when she gets panicked about making a mistake, I do understand how she feels because I feel the same way. I don't want anybody to think I don't know something, right? That's why I don't want to ask somebody, where did you grow up and where did you go to school? Because then they'll know that I don't already know that, except that that's crazy. Why would I know that, right? And I also intellectually, I know people want to talk about themselves. The best way to like, seem friendly to somebody is to ask them about themselves. And yet somehow I have so much trouble. This is my social anxiety. I have so much trouble kind of revealing, not knowing something. So she's probably internalized that somehow. I mean, I certainly haven't come out and said, never let them know that there's something you don't know. 
I've given her a million lectures about, you know, it's okay if you hit a wrong note. That's how we learn. You just try again. Yeah. Okay. So then what we have to recognize is that she doesn't believe you. Yeah. Right? (laughs) You've said that a gazillion times. She doesn't believe you. Maybe if we're looking at sort of this combination of parenting, it may be that you would get more traction with your husband if you said, you know, I've been thinking about, I've been seeing this behavior in our nine-year-old, and I wonder if we can work together to make sure that she's not getting the message, which it sounds like she is, that she can't make a mistake. And you can say to him, you know, of course, our children are a combination of us. They're a combination of our genes. They're a combination of our upbringings. They're a combination of our baggage. They're a combination of our parenting styles. So I wonder if we look at the combination of us conveying to her that she can't make a mistake, that when she watches us do our lives, what does she see? So she sees a dad that kind of freaks out and is catastrophic, that something might go wrong. She sees a dad that's kind of rigid about this and this and this. She sees a mom that has a lot of energy, that does a lot of things, that's really into this and this and this but also is really a little worried about not knowing something and embarrassing herself and putting herself out there. Because remember, social anxiety is really based in a fear of judgment. What will people think of me? And you know it's irrational. If I ask you where you're born, if I were to ask you right now, where were you born, Rachel? You wouldn't say to me, oh, I can't believe Lynn doesn't know that. You would say, oh, I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. But she is seeing that things need to be done a certain way and that we can't let people know that we don't know. So if you say to your husband together, you say, I've noticed this pattern is that she's really worried about making mistakes. She panics when she doesn't know something. And I think that's a combination of the two of us. This is what I contribute to it. And you can even say, I think maybe this is what you contribute to it. And how can we together Make sure that we are consistently giving her the message, both in our words and our actions. She can be a work in progress. Right. Because she's hearing your words. I'm sure that everybody has said to her, it's fine to make mistakes. If that did the trick, boy, would my job be easy. I have a perfectionist that comes in to see me and I say, you know, look, you don't have to get all 100s in school. Everybody makes mistakes. And if that seventh grader said to me, Oh my gosh, nobody has ever told me that before. That's fantastic news. Thank you so much. (laughs) Off I go. Right, off I go. This is a really helpful five-minute conversation. So we hear it on one level. We know it rationally. And many, many people who work with families will say to this, what you do, what you model is so much more powerful than what you say. So if you could talk to your husband about together, the two of you making sure that you are modeling and demonstrating that to her, both in your reactions to her and to each other and to yourselves, right? Because she's seeing how it is that you two respond to each other and how it is that you two respond, not even so much when she makes a mistake. It doesn't sound like you have the reactions that your husband has, but how do you respond to yourself when you make a mistake? I've talked to parents who are dealing, daughters who are dealing with eating disorders and the mother will say, and the father will say, I have never criticized her body. I have never made a comment about what she eats. I have never, never, never. And that's true. And I believe them. But they will stand in front of the mirror and go, oh, I look like a sack of crap. Or, oh, look at these pants. Oh, I'm so frustrated. Oh, God. I, oh, look at my face. Oh, I'm getting so old. And they're just constantly self-criticizing and they're paying attention to that. If your mantra for your daughter is, it is okay for you to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. It is okay for the world to see you make mistakes, which I'm sure you've said that to her in every possible way you can think of. Yes. (laughs) You and your husband need to talk about how it is that she's seeing something different than what she's hearing Mm -hmm. because she's not believing you. Yeah. Less words. I'll eventually drag her kicking and screaming back to the piano bench and she'll sit and she'll look at the simple piece of music that was terrifying her and she'll master it. And then we get to the end and I say, do you remember how terrified you were of this? Do you see all you have to do is work through it? You know, I was reading your book and it talks about anxiety gives you amnesia. 
right? And she's like, nope, I don't remember. I don't remember freaking out. And I'm like, I am going to videotape you the next time. She will say, I don't remember freaking out? Yeah, she'll say it. I don't know if she's telling the truth, but that she absolutely will say that. Or she'll even, if she does make a mistake, and I'm like, Hun, that sounded great. You know, here's the spot that you need to work on. You hit a wrong note there. She'll say, I didn't hit a wrong note. Well, you did. No, I didn't. It was right. Okay. That is, I cannot be at fault, Mm -hmm. right? It's very hard for her to own her mistakes, very much like it might be for her dad to own his mistakes. Yeah. Right? One of the things you could do with her, and you can do this with both of your girls, is to make it kind of a game of keeping track of mistakes, that it's kind of a silly thing that you do. And you could even say to her, we're going to play a game where for the next few days, every time you make a mistake, I'm going to give you a Tootsie Roll. Oh, so reward mistakes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And don't do that for the rest of her life. (laughs) But you want to explain to her the purpose of this game. Mm -hmm. And you want to say to her in a time when she's not frustrated at the piano, Enervated. Yeah. Yep. You're going to say to her, you know, I've noticed something. I've noticed that when you're learning something new on the piano, your first response, when you come up against something, your first response is to panic. Mm -hmm. I see you kind of freak out. I see you have these great big emotions. And my job as a mom is to help you manage those big emotions. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what it's like inside of you when you make a mistake in the piano. What do you think you feel on the inside? What is that like for you when you make those mistakes? She can't describe it. Okay. I've tried. I would have predicted that. I'm always looking for the deficit. I'm always looking for what they don't know how to do. And it doesn't surprise me at all that she doesn't know how to describe that. So then you say, well, let's talk about it. When I make a mistake, this is what I feel. Sometimes I feel this. Sometimes I feel that. You can tell her, I get nervous when I'm talking to somebody. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. And if I'm talking to somebody and I say the wrong thing, I feel embarrassed. I feel angry. Sometimes my heart pounds. I feel like I am a cat trapped in a corner, whatever. Give her words. Give her the vocabulary. And you can say, so when you make a mistake on the piano, I see you doing things. I don't know what you feel inside, but I wonder if you feel this. I wonder if you feel that. I wonder if you feel that. Now, as you're introducing this to her, she may say, nope, 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 because she's closed off. Just talking about me. (laughs) I'm just spitballing here. I'm just spitballing here. (laughs) The phrase, I wonder, really helpful. I wonder. I wonder if this is how you feel. Lots of times with kids, I say, I could be totally wrong about this. And then sometimes they say, I don't think I'm totally wrong, but it looks like, or it sounds like. So start to equip her with some of that emotional vocabulary so she can begin to make a connection between the way she's feeling and what she's doing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So she can begin to understand that. And then say to her, I've noticed that you have a hard time when you think you're going to make a mistake, even before you make a mistake. Right. Your worry pops up and says, you might make a mistake. Even before you make a mistake, you feel like that. So Let's play a game. And it's going to sound like a silly game. It's going to sound like a crazy game is that when we're practicing piano, every time you make a mistake, I'm going to just keep track of it. You get a mini marshmallow. Right. Whatever it is. You don't want to sort of feed her like a seal. (laughs) At the end of your piano lesson, you can say, oh my gosh, fantastic. You made seven mistakes. That's a super idea. Yeah. Isn't that fantastic? (laughs) So we're just playing with this idea. But explain to her that making mistakes doesn't feel good. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. But we've got to find a way to tolerate them. And you say to her, the last thing I would want for you, because you are such an amazing little person, is for you to be so, so afraid of making a mistake that you can't handle making a mistake. So there's being afraid of making a mistake. There's being able to handle making mistakes not many people actually like making a mistake and that's perfectly fine. And say to her, I don't like making a mistake. Daddy doesn't like making a mistake, but I want you to be in that place where you can handle making a mistake. Right. How are those new year's resolutions going? 
Well, many are destined to fail. But lucky for you, here's one easy resolution idea that we gave you that we can all make and it will make your life easier. It'll be kinder to our planet and it will transform the way you do laundry in 2024. And that is switching to EarthBreeze. EarthBreeze looks like dryer sheets, but it's ultra concentrated laundry detergent and it couldn't be easier. You just throw a sheet in with your laundry in any temperature and you watch it dissolve in any wash cycle hot or cold. There's no measuring, there's no mess, there's no fuss, there's no wasteful plastic jug. EarthBreeze fights everyday stains and odors, giving you an amazing clean every time. The best part is you'll never run out again thanks to EarthBreeze flexible subscription that you can adjust, pause, or cancel at any time with no hidden fees or penalties. And you'll save a whopping 40% when you subscribe. Shipping's always free, and it comes in a slim cardboard envelope that saves a ton of space. So switching to EarthBreeze won't only make laundry day easier for you, but it will also be easier on the planet. So help me make plastic jugs a thing of the past. And if EarthBreeze doesn't end up being the 2024 update of your dreams, you don't even have to return it. Just let them know it's not for you and you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. Get started with EarthBreeze and save 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks. That's earthbreeze.com slash flusterclucks for 40% off your subscription. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. So when you're a parent, you're going to have your fair share of big talks with your kids, right? About all sorts of big topics. One of those big talks should involve money. And Greenlight can help with that. Greenlight is a debit card and a money app that's made for families. It allows you to do instant money transfers. You can get real-time notifications of spending. You can manage chores. You can automate allowance. I know with my kids, we really wanted to help them see the cause and effect, right? If you spend money now, you're not going to have it later. If you earn money now and you save it, maybe you can put it towards some big purchase that you're looking forward to. This is called financial literacy, and it allows kids to build independence, to learn how money works, to make them better savers, better spenders. The Greenlight app also comes with an in-app financial literacy game. It's called Level Up, so that kids can build money confidence through videos, bite-sized challenges, mini games, and more. More than 6 million parents and kids use Greenlight to learn how to make responsible financial choices. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash fluster. That's greenlight.com slash fluster to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash fluster. So now back to the show. Next step, like getting advice on the mistake, right? Because I mean, I'm talking later today to her school about a 504 plan. Now, I don't think that this kid has learning disabilities at all, but this fear is starting to get in the way of her learning. And I got the strangest sort of letter as part of her last review from her third grade teacher, which was written from the teacher to the student saying, so often... I tell you how to do something like how to get to the end of a math problem and you refuse to take my advice and you insist on doing it your way. Don't you see that your way doesn't work? Now maybe you'll start trying to take my advice and do it my way. I mean, it was such a crazy letter. (laughs) I hope she doesn't listen to the podcast, but it's clear that the teacher is frustrated with her too because she's digging in in school also and it's preventing her from learning the material. I mean, right now it's multiplication tables, but it's going to get worse. Yep. This is rigidity. Yeah. And it's this crazy careening between like, I'm totally capable of it and I'm terrible. I can't do anything. And there's like no middle ground. Correct. I would draw for her three boxes. Totally capable girl. She can do everything. She's going to do it perfectly. Disaster girl. She can't do anything. She's awful. You're not this one or this one. You are in the middle like the rest of us. Sometimes there are going to be things that you catch on to really quickly and really easily. And sometimes you're going to catch on to things that are really hard. You have a budding perfectionist on your hands. Yeah. (laughs) And you're absolutely right to pay attention to this. Now, what I would be very interested in is what are they going to put in place in a 504 
Because remember, a 504 is about accommodations. She doesn't need an accommodation. She needs skill building. Right, exactly. So when you have a conversation, if I were talking to this third grade teacher, I would say, here's what we have. We have a little girl who is very rigid, who gets panicked and shuts down when she either does make a mistake or she anticipates making a mistake. The belief that she is carrying around inside her is that she either should know everything, and if she doesn't, she's a total disaster, and it's having her careen emotionally. We need to help her develop the ability to tolerate making a mistake. We need to talk about that. We need to normalize that. So she says seven times eight, and she says 54. And the teacher says, nope, that's not the right answer. Think of it again, or let's do it this way, right? Boom, off she goes to the races. I want your little girl to recognize the process of how this happens. And that when this part of her shows up, we're going to pull the worry out. We're going to give it a name. We're going to call it Sally Strict, Polly Perfect, Bossy Barbara, whatever, and have her begin to recognize that that part of her shows up. It doesn't have to do anything with the answer to seven times eight. And the teacher has to talk to her about process, not content. This is what your brain and your body do when you begin to feel afraid, when you begin to feel angry, when you begin to feel worried that you're going to make a mistake or that you don't know something. Yeah. Again, I totally relate to that. You know, if I'm having a conversation with somebody who I think respects me and thinks I'm intelligent, I'm very fluent, very poised, very, you know, intelligent sounding. If I feel like I'm talking to somebody who is the opposite of that, I get so distracted by that, I can't even put two sentences together. Right. So really helping her understand the process of how this works, step by step. I draw a lot of boxes. Step one, you can use piano as an example. You can use her times tables as an example. Step one is that there's something you are not sure that you know. Step two, your worry begins to say, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, this is a disaster. Step three, we have to step back and recognize this is the part of you that does this. And then step four may be, oh, we're going to take a break or we're going to take a breath or whatever. We're going to come back to it and try it again. And the step that we're trying to minimize, the step that we're trying to deal with is that when she is feeling overwhelmed, when she's feeling these feelings, which are normal to feel, that we don't go into complete freak out, right? So she doesn't go into complete freak out at school, I bet. She goes into shut down, stubborn, I'm not going to do it. I think so. Yeah. From what I can glean, I don't get any reports from her from school. (laughs) So at home, she might scream and yell and run and hide in the corner. At school, she just, she shuts down. She digs in. This is a flexibility issue. This is an emotional management issue. And this is her learning how she works. And it's not about math and it's not about piano. It's about you making sure you and your husband are conveying to her It doesn't feel good to make a mistake. We get that. How we respond and react to mistakes is something that you still have to learn. She's learning piano. She's learning math. She's learning this. She's learning that. But the skill you want to teach is how does she manage inside what are the words that she needs? What are the responses that she needs? So that when she makes a mistake or when she doesn't know something, she has something to say like, This is really hard for me. I don't know what to do. I feel really bad right now, mommy. I feel really angry right now, mommy, because I don't know this and I need some help. You want to give her that language, but I would be really careful of putting in a 504 plan that does not teach that skill. Yeah, I'm pretty nervous about it because I don't think that what they need to do is like take her out of the classroom. I don't think that they need to slow down the exam for her. You know, I all those things that I've heard that 504s do, right? That's not what it's about. Extra time to create her assignment that we're going to give, right? All of these avoidance things, that's not addressing the issue. We can go into this conversation and say, here's the skill that I want her to develop. These are some of the things that I'm going to work on at home. 
And I wonder if we can also prompt her and help her to use these skills in school. And it's not going to be an overnight fix, but we're not going to help her avoid. We're going to help her develop this ability to tolerate when it feels badly. So what might that look like, right? Because I have basically said that to them. I've said, look, it doesn't matter what the topic is. She needs tools. And the tool she needs is the ability to have the stamina and the bravery to work through the inevitable mistakes that are inherent in learning something. So I just wouldn't use the word stamina and bravery, right? What she needs is the ability to tolerate that it doesn't feel good when you make a mistake. And she needs the vocabulary to talk about that. You know, this is why pulling out that worry is so helpful because we want her to observe this pattern in her. It's the ability to tolerate that it doesn't feel good when you make a mistake. And then what do you do next? Right. Because right now, when she makes a mistake, she shuts down. She goes into fight or flight. She backs out. She gets more rigid. So we want to talk to her about how she needs to be flexible. We want to talk to her about how she needs to be able to feel the yuckiness of making a mistake, but that that's okay, that we're going to expect yuckiness to show up. And it may be, you know, one of the things is, is that she comes up with her teacher or she comes up with you with several phrases that she says to herself when she's in that situation. And the phrases are all along the lines of, I know this is how I feel when I make a mistake. I don't like how this feels, but I'm learning to handle it. I have a part of me that gets very powerful when I feel embarrassed. And so give her that language and maybe you write that down on an index card. And when she comes up against this perfectionistic drive and that the teacher knows it too, so that they have a little bit of communication. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You know, it's interesting because again, there are things that she learns very easily and those things don't scare her. So the example I'm trying to talk about is she started ice skating this year and they just had the spring ice skating show. She begged to do a solo. She went out there because she, she loves to perform, actually. And she's also very galvanized by competition. You know, she wants to be the best. Okay. That's perfectionism. Be careful about that. Yeah. <laughs> but it didn't upset her. A whole stadium full of strangers. She even forgot parts of her routine ad-libbed it and it came out great. And I said, honey, why are you fine with that? And then at the piano, you get scared. And she said, I, I don't know. Okay. We're going to get rid of why questions. So what you want to say is, it was so interesting to me how, so start that same thing with how, not why. How do you think you handled when you were doing your ice skating and you missed that little part and you ad-libbed and it came out great? How did you do that on the inside? And how does that feel different than when you're playing the piano, you make a mistake and then you get so, so upset. So that's so interesting to me. I wonder how you did that. That part of you shows up sometimes and it doesn't show up other times. That's so interesting to me. How do you think you did that? Yeah. Where was Barbara that day? Where was Barbara that day? And did Barbara show up and you said, oh, Barbara, please, I'm ice skating. Uh huh. <laughs> so a lot of times when, again, when we're looking at the content where something shows up and then the content where it doesn't show up, we try and make it rational. You know, if somebody has social anxiety, they'll say, I can't call and order pizza on the phone, but I can stand up and sing a solo at church in front of 500 people. And parents will say, well, that makes no sense. I go, yeah, because this thing makes no sense. It's not rational. Talk to her. How? 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 That's so interesting that you did that. It's so interesting. So be curious. Have her become curious. She needs some coaching and she's nine. So of course she needs some coaching about how it is we manage when things don't go the way we want them to go and things don't go the way we expect them to go. And that's the skill she doesn't have right now. But this is very well-timed because you are going to go into that meeting with a whole lot of information that's going to be really helpful. And you're not going to come out with a 504 that puts in accommodations that don't teach her skills. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully they'll understand what I'm trying to say and have ideas about how to help her with it. I mean, I'm so glad this is being recorded. So I'll listen to it over and over. Being able to articulate this to them is going to be tricky because based on the letter that the teacher wrote, 
there's a disconnect there about what she needs. She's in a power struggle and that's not going to be helpful. If you can introduce the teacher this idea that there is a part of her that gets activated and it is perfectionistic, it's rigid, it's not rational, it's incapable of learning in that moment. And we want to talk to her, not when she's in that moment, but talk to her about how she's going to handle herself when that part shows up. What are the words that the teacher can use to remind her that this part has shown up? So it's okay. We're just going to take a little step back and see if we can get her back on track. You know, I love your introduction because you say, and I'll even give you the words. (laughs) Okay. So if you listen back to this, that those words, this feels difficult for you right now. This part of you that they've named whatever. So say she names it Bossy Barbara. They can call it BB, right? For short, nobody has to know. This part of you has shown up right now. I can see what's going on inside of you. And so we're going to take a little step back because right now there is a part of you that is saying you can't make a mistake or you have to know how to do this or this is very embarrassing. There's that part of you. And so right now we're going to recognize that part of you. And what should we say back to that part? What should we say back to that part? And she's going to need a lot of coaching in this. And she's going to need a lot of role modeling from you and from her dad so that she believes you. When you are doing piano and when she makes a mistake and she freaks out and runs away, I would want you to say, so it looks right now you know, you're going to make these boxes with her. It looks like right now we've stepped into box three, haven't we? So let's take a break. When you're ready to go to the next step, when I can help you, you let me know. As I say to parents all the time, talk 85% less. When she is in that state, shut up. She's not hearing you anyway. If the answer is never, I never wanted to study piano anyway. I want to quit. You say, all right, I'm just going to take a break. You let me know. And then you walk away and you let her come back to you. Mm -hmm. If you're begging and pleading and saying, you need to practice this and this is what we need to do. But in the moment, all of that needs to stop. When she freaks out, you detach. Not in an abandoned way, not in a, oh, I'm done with you way. But when she freaks out, you step back. I can see you're having a rough time now. Bossy Barbara is in the room. Hello, Bossy Barbara. Right. We're going to work through this together. We're going to just take a break. And then you disengage and let her give her some space to work this through. And the next day when I say, okay, it's time for piano. And she says, I don't want to. And I say, well, you have to. (laughs) Is she going to say, I don't want to? Yeah. Looking back to the beginning of the conversation, right? Learning piano or any new musical instrument is hard. It's really boring. It's a lot of repetition at the beginning. How do you get her to do it? I cajole. I threaten. I never yell, Mm -hmm. but I threaten to take away other things like gymnastics or ballet or other things that she wants or that play date this afternoon or whatever. And I'm starting to see glimmerings of, oh, actually she does. She is starting to appreciate that she can play piano. She is starting to appreciate music. You know, she is starting to be happy about it. But I think if I let up the pressure, yeah, she'd definitely drop it. So she does gymnastics and ballet also? Well, I just stopped the gymnastics because she was completely overscheduled. What happened was, you know, COVID started to end and I said, okay, anything that you can go in person to, fine, do it. No more punishment if she doesn't practice her piano. No more threatening. No more taking things away. You're sitting here telling me you've got a rigid, budging perfectionist on her hand. A mom who's sitting at the piano with her, teaching her piano. She's freaking out. What's the skill that you want to teach her? So I think that studying a musical instrument, first of all, gives an appreciation. Uh, I'm going to cut you off. What's the skill you want to teach her? Learning hard things. Okay. So that's a really, really valuable skill. You also want her to appreciate music. You want to appreciate how this goes, right? I would have a conversation with her about how taking piano and learning piano is one of the ways in which we learn hard things. And right now it's become a battle between you and her. And that's not what you want to teach her. So I would say to her, if you really don't want to learn piano right now, let's take two months off. You think about it. 
and then we can go back to it. So do you think nine is old enough to make that decision? I think if you have a nine-year-old that's screaming during piano lessons, if you have a mom that's threatening during piano lessons, if you have a dad that is freaking out when somebody in the family makes a mistake, then you got to shift some things, Mm -hmm. right? So you can say to her, we're going to keep playing piano, but we're going to do it differently. We're going to practice such and so many times a day or whatever the routine is. This is what our instructor has told us. And let's figure out how to make that happen. But you've got a bigger problem on your hand than whether or not she learns how to play the piano. Yeah, piano is just where I see it. So use that as a way to teach her this skill. But you don't teach her the skill by threatening and by punishing. Kids don't learn important emotional management skills through punishment. Just doesn't work. Reward, though? Yeah, reward. Sure. Yeah. I loved the part in your book where you said, so let's talk about bribery. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. If you're going to pay attention to the mistakes she makes and she gets a little marshmallow for every mistake, you've got to make this more playful and fun. Yeah. Because she's nine years old. These activities are supposed to be fun. Mm-hmm. You want her to experience joy. Mm-hmm. And if you're sitting down to play the piano and this is emotionally where it goes for the both of you, mm-hmm. it's not the point of learning how to play the piano. At some point, I do hope it clicks over to, I appreciate my ability to do this. but And for some kids, it does. And for some kids, it doesn't. Right? Yeah. So you can say to her, we're going to keep learning the piano until such and such a time. And let's work on having this be a nice, enjoyable experience for us. Mm -hmm. Because right now, it is a consistent battle between her and her, between her and you. I don't know how dad gets involved in it. Nobody's learning anything emotionally. The lesson that you want her to learn is that you can tolerate making mistakes. So think about how you're going to teach her that taking things away and threatening to take away the things that she enjoys doing so she can do the things she hates doing right now is just not the plan that you want to continue. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. It it always occurs to me, I need to think of more rewards. And it's not that we don't do rewards, but... Yeah, and reward. you tell kids why you're rewarding them. Mm -hmm. You tell them why, because it helps when you're learning a new skill. If you have something to look forward, if you have something that makes it playful, if you have something that makes it silly, right? You talk about that. Yeah. All right. So you've got a lot to think about and a lot to practice. You're on the right track. As I said at the beginning, noticing this and being aware of this, you should, because this is something you want to get on. And she's nine. And when you go into the school, do not let them put a plan in place that helps her avoid. Right. You're going to have to be the advocate for them helping her develop this skill because the teacher's in a power struggle with her too. See, you're not doing it my way. If you did it my way, it would work out better, wouldn't it? That's not what this is about. This is about her budding perfectionism and her rigidity and how do we help her understand what's going on inside of her. You're so effective and helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you've got a lot to work on. Take it a step at a time. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Okay, everybody. So that conversation was chock full of important things for all of us to remember about flexibility. I'm just going to reiterate a few things, just either because you need to hear them again, or if you're a newer listener, maybe you haven't heard them much at all, but things to do to promote flexibility. Just a little reminder, you can have that wall of flexibility in your house. You can pick a door, you can pick a piece of wall, get a whole bunch of colorful sticky notes. And every time your family handles something flexibly, you just write a few words on about it and put it up on that wall of flexibility. I also, just as a reminder, I love the metaphor of being uncooked spaghetti. So go ahead in your pantry, get out some spaghetti, uncooked hand it to your child and say, let's try and make this spaghetti into a circle. And there you have a very visual representation of what happens when you're too rigid. Not only are you fragile, but it's impossible to move around in the world in a way that you want to. So those are things that for younger kids, for older kids, just remember that you are constantly letting them know that you are working on your flexibility as well. So it's okay if you are rigid about something, 
and you feel like you shouldn't have been rigid about it, maybe you overreacted, it is really okay for you to say loud and clear, oh, sometimes I just get stuck. Sometimes I just get rigid. Here's another way we can look at this. Give your kids permission to call you out on your rigidity so that you're working on it together as a family. I heard this expression that I'm going to butcher, but it was something like, Palm trees survive hurricanes because they can bend. Oh. Which I think works well for teenagers. Yeah. I often hear that about willow trees. So palm trees, willow trees, anything. I love when we can come up with a phrase or an image, just an idea that puts a visual there for us. Because particularly if you've got a younger kid or if you have a child that's very concrete in their thinking, it gives you a little shortcut that you can use a visual. So I love that. Be a palm tree. Cook spaghetti. It's just this little shortcut that reminds everybody that flexibility is important. And we really want to help kids differentiate between when more flexibility is needed and maybe a little bit rigidity of rigidity is required. And so it's that movement between. So flexibility, remember, flexibility doesn't mean chaos. Flexibility doesn't mean no rules, no boundaries. Flexibility means a movement between when we have to really do something in a more particular way and when we can let something go. If this episode was helpful to you, you can join our Facebook community and we'd love it if you left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.